welcome back to Psyched for Peds, the child mental health podcast for pediatric clinicians, helping you help kids. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Falucco, child psychiatrist and mom. I want to share an alarming fact that not a lot of people know about. Youth suicide is the second leading cause of death in children, teens, and young adults in the U.S., making them more likely to die by suicide than from any medical illness. There's so many things we can do to try to prevent morbidity and mortality. And in today's conversation, we really talk about how can we reduce risk of suicide in the kids we take care of and even in the kids in our own community. We have with us Dr. Brian Kurtz, child and adolescent psychiatrist and medical educator extraordinaire from Cincinnati Children's. Welcome, Dr. Brian Kurtz. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for welcoming me. I'm excited to get to talk to you about this really important topic, especially with September being Suicide Prevention Month. Let's just get started talking about suicide risk. We all would love to be able to predict who is at risk for suicide in an effort to be able to prevent and stop it or minimize it. We have a lot of research on demographic factors that increase risk for suicide. We know girls are more likely to attempt, but boys are more likely to die by suicide. And our youth who are gender and sexual minority definitely have an increased risk of suicide for a number of reasons. Race and ethnicity also play a role. And most recently, we've seen pretty significant rises in suicide rates among Black youth, especially among younger Black kids, 12 and under. Dr. Kurtz, what other suicide risk factors should pediatric clinicians be looking out for? The number one thing that's usually on most people's list would be a history of a prior suicide attempt. So if there's been one of those, that definitely puts you in a group that is automatically at a significantly higher risk The estimates range from, I think, tenfold to 50-fold increased risk of of death by suicide if you're in that group. I think another important would be non-suicidal self-injurious behavior. Individuals who engage in self-injury without the intent to end their life also potentially are at risk for, for having suicidal behavior like suicide attempts or potentially death by suicide. And they're at several times elevated risk as well. Even though while they're engaging in the non-suicidal self-injury, they are clearly not trying to die. But at other times, they may engage in behavior that that is more concerning. I do remember much earlier in my practice having a lot of conversations about helping people understand the difference between cutting and suicide. The intent in cutting is largely to relieve stress or to avoid pain or, or to distract yourself from a really intense emotional state and that it's not an attempt to end your life. And then we find out all of this data that says actually exactly what you said, even though it isn't the same thing, it still conveys an increased risk. There's a concept in the literature about suicide that is called the capacity for suicidal behavior. Taking what many people might think of as pretty drastic action in response to emotional pain, like cutting or burning, maybe a predictor of someone who's also going to take a different kind of dramatic action at at some point in an attempt to end their life. Yeah. And to your point earlier about one of the largest predictors of future suicide attempts is previous suicide attempts. What is it? The best predictor of the future is the past. If you are to the point where you are engaging in these behaviors, that makes us all want to stop and take a look. 
Yeah. I think many people, there are sort of natural inhibitors for them to ever attempt suicide. Even if the thought crosses their mind, there is a large gulf between the idea occurring to them and taking action. We know that having once crossed that gulf and gone from I had thoughts to I took action on those thoughts, that's a pretty big predictor. It may even itself make it more likely to happen again in the future because there may be a decreased sort of in a bit to that kind of behavior. So I think that's one thing that I think about. Another is psychiatric illness of different kinds. So the classic is we associate with mood disorders, bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder. But we also know that other conditions like eating disorders and substance use disorders, sometimes anxiety disorders, and sometimes even ADHD, which is a very common condition, which is not typically associated with suicidal behavior, but when linked with other conditions, may increase the risk posed by those conditions because the impulsivity can be increased. The impulsivity associated with ADHD or just a history of impulsive aggression is a major risk factor for suicide. Typically, there's a certain number of steps that you take between like thoughts of suicide, as you described, and then there's the multiple steps until you get to action. But But if you have this history of impulsive aggression or a high degree of impulsivity, it short circuits and you go straight from thoughts of suicide almost immediately to action. You cannot underestimate the increased risk in kids with ADHD and with impulsive aggression, even if they don't necessarily have a a mood disorder or depression at the time. Yeah. Family history is another potential risk factor that we consider. So a history of death by suicide or suicide attempts, especially by first degree biological relatives, or especially folks who are caregivers, I think, of this individual is something that we see as a risk. So I know in the research, multiple things that place you at increased risk for suicide can be genetically inherited. And if you have somebody who died by suicide as a close family relative, your genetic loading is very high. At the same time, I've also seen kids whose parents died by suicide, and that became a very protective factor for them. So in spite of the genetic loading for increased risk, what they would say is knowing what it was like to be on the other side of that makes it so much harder for me to seriously consider acting on these thoughts. Absolutely. I think that's such a good point. I think trauma is a significant risk factor. It's difficult to overstate the major impact on all aspects of one's life that significant traumatic experiences can have. When there's disrupted attachments, so the normal relationships between the person who's taking care of a young person as they're growing up and that young person, when those things are very disrupted, it can really interfere with a lot of things and it can increase the risk for suicide for sure. So thinking about health promotion and prevention and things that can turn out to be protective factors for suicide, could you talk about things that you think could help reduce the risk of suicide in youth? The biggest thing, if if I was to boil it down to one thing, I think it's connection. The degree of connection, and it can be to a number of individuals. Certainly, the, the classic would be a parent that they feel connected enough to be able to share how they're feeling, that they're beginning to have more suicidal thoughts and that these are things that they're struggling with. It can be a connection to another adult in their life. Sometimes it's a teacher. I've seen it be a a sports coach or a, a music instructor, but definitely caring friends. So peers that they feel connected to 
when they're participating in activities like through the school or through sports teams or things like that, a feeling of being anchored to the world. And just in general feeling that sense of I have a place where I belong. I have a place where I'm connected to other people in this world. That is probably the single biggest predictor of individuals being at lower risk. Being involved in religious organizations and certain religious beliefs can be protective It's also worth saying that for some individuals, religion can be a double-edged sword, especially if uh, religious beliefs within a family conflict with the identity, like the gender identity or the sexual orientation identity of the young person, That then it can become more of a risk factor. But in many other individuals, involvement and with religion and spirituality can be a positive protective factor. Excellent. Probably the biggest protective factor for suicide is connection. We can't underestimate how therapeutic that we can be as clinicians with families and with kids. Kids notice. Kids can tell the difference between adults and people who take the time to sit down and make eye contact and really listen and stop typing on the keyboard for a little bit and just take that five seconds or 10 seconds or whatever it is to really lock in on the kid, try to pay attention and not think about the 27 interview questions you have to ask next. They see that and they feel that in a way that that is so important. Yeah. As we're talking about connection, the potential for a connection between a young person and a provider is, is one we should absolutely point out. But I think to even go one step further than that, to think about how a provider might be able to be a catalyst for a young person to feel connected to a caregiver in their life, potentially by being able to help that caregiver build the skills to be receptive to the kind of connection that will be useful for that young person. So mom, you really want to connect with your daughter. And I think that she uh, is not really receptive to the ways that you're reaching out for connection now. Let's explore some other ways that will help her to be as connected as she can be, uh, knowing that every uh, mom of a teenager is cringe. uh, And uh, that's just how it's going to be. But we can still have connection. Excellent point. Just trying to facilitate that family connection because that's going to last be so much stronger. Finally, what is one thing that you wish all pediatric clinicians knew that could help them take better care of kids and teens with suicide risk? I think probably the single biggest thing is maybe to come back to the idea of connection. And when you recognize that there's a child who is at risk in one way or another because of the PHQ that you did or the SQ that you did or something else that came up in the interview, that this is a child who's struggling at this moment, that you be thinking about how do I find ways to connect the plugs that come from this kid to other individuals or organizations, which will keep them from feeling like they are disconnected, floating in space with no connection? How can we connect back up those wires so that there's more of a circuit going on? Because that's the healthy state for a young person, is to be connected to other people and to the things that are happening in their lives. We know that Rome wasn't built in a day, right? So it's it's difficult to get the device all connected back up within the span of a well-child visit. But to see that as that's the central task 
that I'm going to do. And I'm going to use the tools that are at my disposal of continuing to follow the status of this patient and connecting them to mental health treatment when that's appropriate and finding ways to utilize things like psychiatric medication, if that's indicated for a condition like depression or anxiety. These are all things that the primary care provider is doing at once, but the connection is going to be what is most protective and what brings anchors the young person, I think, to safety. And that's not something that we learn in medical school. We spent all this time talking about the pathophysiology and the proximal and distal tubule of the kidney (laughs) and what comes in and what comes out. (laughs) You're about to quiz me on the Krebs cycle and I would fail. Um, But this is, but that's the most important part. Beautifully put. Something simple that we can all do in our daily practice is try to facilitate connections between kids and loved ones, between kids and trusted adults, kids and their friends, kids and activities so that they can have a sense of belonging. And in facilitating these connections, what we're effectively doing is we're not only reducing risk for suicide, but creating a buffer around them, sort of protective bubble in a sense. To summarize, there are some things that increase your risk for suicide that we cannot control, like our genetic loading, family history, etc. However, we can and do reduce risk for suicide by identifying and treating mental health problems in kids and teens. And so the hard work that pediatricians are doing every day taking care of these kids is effectively decreasing risk for suicide and saving lives. Thanks to all of you who are joining us for these hard conversations. And I hope you'll join us for the next couple of parts over the next couple of weeks as we talk about how we interview and talk to kids and parents about suicide and then helpful strategies for thinking about screening for suicide risk in your practice. And as always, if you have any ideas about what you want to hear about or questions that you have in clinical cases, please email us at info at psychedforpeds.com or send me a chat on our website, psychedforpeds.com or on Instagram.